Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Hello and welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs with a brisk 30 minutes on the latest in South African and global news, live and then up as a podcast. I'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all in a concise, informative update. It's Friday, March the 1st, and coming up are contract killings on the increase. Businessman Roger Jardine's new party is a no-go in the May election. What will it take to get off the grey list? Actors are up in arms over the new copyright bill, and Bantu Holomisa is gunning for Pravin Gordon over the SAA sale. National Treasury says while South Africa is on track to address all outstanding action items by the Financial Action Task Force with regards to the country's grey listing, it remains a challenge to address all 17 of the remaining action items by February next year. So what has been the tangible economic impact of South Africa being placed on the grey list, particularly in terms of foreign investment and financial sector confidence? Kevin Ling's Chief Economist at Stanlib. Welcome to you. Yeah, I think we have. Obviously, it's part of a, a package of disappointing developments in South Africa. So, you know, the fact that we our credit rating dropped below investment grade, that's also clearly helped us. The fact that we haven't been able to generate decent economic growth overall, that has discouraged foreign investment. So I think I think there are a range of things. The Lady R ship, the Russia involvement, that's clearly also been unhelpful. But the feedback we get, particularly in the financial uh, services sector, is that the cost implications of this has been significant. So all of these transactions have a much, much higher degree of compliance. So you've got to provide a huge amount more information. That's expensive. Also, the process of getting transactions approved, that has become a lot longer. And so that has added to the complexity, the delay, and obviously the cost of it. So I think that there are very tangible factors that have stifled South Africa as a consequence of being being grey listed. Mm. It's not it's not that people are saying, well, we won't do business with you. That's not happening. We're still doing business. But the the process of trying to get that business approved, the hurdles, the information a lot more onerous. And clearly, um, if they then end up with a choice, so let's say foreigners have got a choice of who do they sign contracts with, there is a tendency to go with countries that are not grey listed. And difficult, I imagine, to put a number to that. Very difficult to put it to because we can see that foreigners have, for example, reduced their holdings of South African government bonds. At one stage, they owned 
you know, 42% of having in government bonds. That's enormous. And and over the years, that has dwindled down to, to just over 20%. Now, what, what portion of that relates to credit rating? What portion relates to grey listing? That's difficult to discern. We know the currency's been under pressure. I've got no doubt that, that re- relates to a worsening international perception of South Africa and the grey listing is part of that. But you can't really say or isolate what actual component of this deterioration is just gray listing and what if it and what component is a overall perception about south africa that is worsened so kevin one imagines that work behind the scenes has been ongoing how then do you assess the effectiveness of the reform so far in addressing the concerns and are there areas where progress you think has been either notably faster or slower so there is progress. So government, and, and that's very, I mean, it sounds it sounds obvious, but it's not. There are many countries that when they were grey listed, they didn't react. They didn't try and implement reforms and they ultimately got blacklisted. So you can, you can get worse than this and you don't want to be blacklisted. So South Africa responded and, and obviously was engaging uh, prior to the actual grey listing and trying to avoid grey listing. And, and so we were trying to introduce re- remedies at that point. It obviously wasn't enough. And that has broadly continued on. Now, we've got this financial action task force that has been set up to uh, try and get us off the grey listing. They've got various initiatives. But I would say that... <laughs> There's progress, but it's a long way to go. Um, And part of this has to do with the fact that it's not, I think there's a perception that this is all in the hands of government, that government must initiate all these reforms and implement these reforms, and then we won't be grey listed. That's, That's unfair. Obviously, government does have a significant role, but the private sector equally has a huge role. And so let me give you some examples. So You've got to get a high degree of compliance from casinos. You've got to get a high degree of compliance from estate agents, from lawyers, from companies that sell luxury goods. So if you take a luxury goods brand, Gucci or Louis Vuitton, those brands, they've got a high degree of compliance. Now, what we've made progress is identifying these sectors, which is what what other countries do. We've got a list of companies that are involved in these sectors, but now you need those companies to furnish a huge amount of information. And the progress on getting that in place is slow. And, and many of these sectors, you know, if I look at the lawyers, less than 50% have responded. And, and you need these percentages to go up dramatically so that you're collecting the right set of information so that you can demonstrate that these companies are uh, monitoring and adhering to the money laundering type criteria and to a whole lot of uh, measures that help to guard against um, corruption, etc. So I know there's this idea of, well, we want to get off grey listing in a year's time. We've already been grey listed for a year. I think it's too optimistic. I would say it's going to take us still a couple of years to move far enough forward with the basic reforms to show that we, we're making meaningful progress. And then there are other big issues that clearly are going to take longer. We've got to be able to demonstrate that we can prosecute, that we can prosecute the complex money laundering cases and that we can prosecute corruption and that we can collect 
the proceeds of corruption, I think we've got a long way to go to demonstrate that, that we've got that prosecutorial capacity. So, so there's progress. We're trying. It's on the agenda. But I think government is being too ambitious with their statements around we will get off grey listing early next year. I appreciate the analysis. Kevin Lings, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. United Democratic Movement leader Bantu Holomisa is hopping mad after a meeting of the Portfolio Committee with the Minister of Public Enterprises, Pravin Gordon, was held in camera. All of this over the sale of the carrier SAA. Bantu Holomisa is with me now on MoneyWeb at midday. And first of all, General Holomisa, why do you believe it was necessary for this meeting to be open to the public in the first place? Yes, it was necessary for this meeting to be open to the public because the government, particular Minister Pravin Gordon and the presidency, they have been hiding the information which was uh, necessary to be displayed in the public opinion as given that this was a national asset. It cannot just be decided by one individual. And even Parliament is not clear of how that decision was taken to sell SAA. So therefore, there was a need. And in particular, after this was uh, revealed in the media, almost all our institutions, I mean, sectors uh, were outraged by this decision of selling SAA for 51 rands. What are your suspicions, uh, General Halami? So what what information do you think is being hidden? Well, I think... uh, Firstly, the mere fact that uh, it's not clear how was this decision taken in the first instance. Was it a cabinet decision to privatize SAA or sell SAA? Uh, Secondly, why was it not published openly to call for other stakeholders who are interested? And thirdly, did the due diligence cover areas of, I mean, all the sections of the SAA, why would you say you would sell this institution, uh, I mean, this, uh, give this to a company to control 51%? And it's not clear what role the state will be playing. How much will the state play? How much are these people bringing? They were talking about 3 billion. What 3 billion can the government can still afford to pay? or assist SAA with $3 billion, but they are struggling even to get that $3 billion currently. Yet, Minister Gordon is insisting that the deal, uh, General Holomisa, with the Takatsa Consortium has been conducted above board. Obviously, you don't believe him. Do you think he's lying? Well, he's being economic on uh, truth, because if, he's up, if it is above board, why is he hiding? Why is he hiding the transaction? So he has to go, because for him to say the... We must sign non-disclosure agreement. It's not on. That is not the role of parliament. Parliament has got a duty to do an oversight. For him to say we cannot do that smacks of arrogance on his part. So what is your next step then? Well, the next step, obviously, it, the matter now is with the committee. And we are awaiting for the next meeting for Pravin uh, to come back and also the legal advice has been sought by portfolio committee of public enterprise so we will see what the legal opinion says 
But this is an issue you believe that could be forced through the courts if necessary? Yes, there have been uh, talk around that. I've been chatting with NUMSA and other interested parties. We may go that route. Fortunately, let's just hope that the voters of South Africa on the 29th of May will change the landscape of the politics of South Africa in a big way. Because once the, there is a new government composed of other parties, province uh, deal and transaction will be reviewed openly and transparently. Well, let's talk about transparency, if we can. In your opinion, how does the withholding of information and the decision to hold this committee meeting in camera now affect parliamentary oversight and accountability? Is this precedent setting? It is a precedent setting uh, where you... The only portfolio committee I know which operate behind closed doors is an uh, is intelligence committee but it's for the first time that uh, an incident of this nature takes place and i think i'm fully behind the chairperson of the portfolio committee and the committee in general that they should reject this uh, move by Pravin. hence the committee has opted to seek for legal advice You'll be aware, and this is a final question, of the Auditor General's concerns about internal financial controls within SAA. Uh, Do you believe that the airline is actually worth saving? The airline, uh, it has to be saved. But what you need to do is if we say there is a partnership, that means public and private sector involvement, there must be clear rules and guidelines so that anyone who is interested to be be allowed to do so. But where you have candidates and you pull them from your pocket, this is where we differ with Pravin because he seems to be having interest only to work with his former colleagues who were with him in the Department of Finance, Jabum Legeti and Mashwele. So we cannot allow that. Bantu Halamisa, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. The Independent Electoral Commission says some political parties are noting a steady increase in donations as the May 29 election draws closer. This is after it released the party donation declarations for December through December in the third quarter of the 23-24 financial year. With me now is Professor Andre Duvenacher from the Northwest University. Northwest University, and Professor, I want to start with the overnight news. The party change starts now. Says it's not going to be contesting this year's election. Are you surprised? There were logistical issues over signatures. I understand. Well, I am not surprised by that because if we look at the number of parties who would like to register, at one point it was about 350 of them. And it's absolutely clear that not all of them can compete. I think currently there are something like 13, one, three parties represented in uh, parliament. Now, the reasons are interesting, and the reasons, as you mentioned, has to do with the logistics. There's a very tight schedule. The parties need to provide a number of things before the 8th of March, and then 
it must go to the IEC, and then on the 18th, uh, the IEC will give feedback, and then the final process is on the 20th. Now, they need to finalize a number, I think, and there's also a bit of controversy about that, because we had very recently, towards the end of the year, core decision, a constitutional core decision, saying that individuals, the independents, only need 1,000 signatures, mm. but it was not applied to new parties. So there's a thinking that they also need 15 parties. But when I look at the IEC's requirements, they are also requiring for new parties 1,000 signatures, and they must provide that with ID documents. Now, a number of parties have complained about this. The African Congress for Transformation of Ace Mahishule, the African People's Convention, Azapu, Build One South Africa, the Land Party, MK, and the UDM. And they are concerned about what they call a compressed time framework. And the IEC's reaction was that the process to register the necessary signatures was already open since the end of January. So I believe at the end of the day, a number of parties aren't going to comply when it comes to the logistical requirements. Professor Duvenacher, let me pivot now to funding if we can. A total of 59 million rand uh, has uh, gone into the coffers of different parties. First of all, do you think this is a significant amount in the broader context of political party funding in this country? Well, I have no real direct information about it, but it seems to me that a lot of finances within the framework of party structures are not properly declared. Let me give you one example. We knew that towards the end of last year, the ANC was in serious financial trouble with the potential to be liquidated. And they owe a group in KZN anything between 120 to 150 million, 150 if you include additional rates and uh, other payments. And somewhere out of nowhere, they received the money and they paid these people. And it's also interesting that in the budget, I think it is two or 300 million were made available for political parties and the ANC know they will require, they will get 57.5% of that total. But so the the money is not always in the open. But if Mm. we look at the legislation, and I think that is important, parties must disclose all donations received above 100,000, whether in cash or whatever. And then parties may not accept, and this is the important one, above 15 million per year from a single donor, also from foreign governments and agencies, except for training and policy development, from any government department or state-owned entity. Now, you will remember very recently there were concerns about the ANC as a government that may got money from either Russia or Iran, and that was connected to the ICJ case uh, with regard to Israel and Hamas. So my take on it is that what we are seeing is probably 
more the tip of the right. iceberg. And we know that parties are very much concerned about opening up their, their financial systems. Professor, why do you think newly registered parties like Rise and Zanzi are leading in the donation amounts then over more established parties like the ANC and the Democratic Alliance? I think that not all donations is, is uh, cleared in all ways. And then we know that Rise and Zanzi received huge support from the Oppenheimer group and specifically the one daughter of Harry Oppenheimer. So there was a huge input in this regard. So I think that is the main reason the application of this law is not clear. But what is interesting about this law is that every party must report every quarter of the year to the IEC. And then the IEC must report to Parliament, where Parliament as an oversight function in this regard. Now, we know who is dominating politics in Parliament, so it's a bit of, I am appointing myself as my own boss, that that type of thing mm. that may happen. But if we look at general politics in South Africa, and we look at financial management and mismanagement in so many structures, I think we can also apply this I won't say to all political parties, but I think it will be applicable to at least some political parties. Professor Andre Duvenacher, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Now you'll know that police have made a breakthrough in the AKA murder case, confirming that the rapper's killing was a hit. At the same time, Boxing South Africa is calling for the speedy resolution to the murder case of its chief financial officer, who was gunned down outside his home in Pretoria a week ago. All of this, says our next guest, highlights a possible increase in contract killings in South Africa. Is that the case? Well, Dr. Jean Redpath is with me now from the Dullah Omar Institute. And firstly, Dr. Redpath, can you elaborate on why contract killings have seemingly become an increasing phenomenon? Well, I'm not so sure they are more common than in the past. You know, we've had a number of high-profile incidents. We had Srindwani allegedly killing Anidwani. We had Najwa Peterson allegedly killing Talib Peterson. And if you actually look at news reports, it goes back right to the 2000s where this sort of thing has happened. What we do know that has increased is political killings in KwaZulu-Natal, which are closely related phenomenon. So... If we class this as another manifestation of the hitmen economy in KwaZulu-Natal, then we could say, yes, it is increasing. This incident is one of those uh, examples. You, you talk about the hitman economy. Is this fueled by something simple like unemployment, or is there more to it than that? I think that unemployment is a simplistic sort of way of looking at it, but it's certainly part of the dynamic of what we're seeing is a very ambitious population looking for quick routes to having all the trappings of a wealthy life. And for many in our population, there isn't an easy path, or there isn't an easy easy path to anyone for wealth, actually. (laughs) And so this economy, it's alleged, it's theorized that it's also grown 
out of the taxi industry where there is a lot of contestation around the more lucrative routes and it's, it's been ongoing for 20 plus years. And as the economy tightens, as money gets more scarce, competition around this sort of thing increases. And Gene, this is difficult, I imagine, to police, particularly when it comes to gathering of evidence and prosecution. Well, what has struck me about many of the recent killings is they've been pretty brazen. <laughs> and it's actually been possible, for example, to find and convict, well, I think they've been convicted, but be to decorance killers and a number of other killers. What they are not giving up is who paid them. Now, I'm not convinced that it's necessary to have the actual assassins give evidence on who paid them. I think one could find other evidence if one looked hard enough, money trails, cell phone records, and so on. And the police have alluded to difficulties in this regard, but I think the law doesn't prevent them from getting a warrant, getting cell phone records, getting banking records, and so on. The difficulty comes when the transactions are done in cash and when there is a significant cash economy already existing, which we know that the taxi industry is a significant cash economy. It's also a difficult place, I imagine, for police to venture into. There must be a concern, fear over reprisal or intimidation. Yes, and certainly that is the reason the assassins themselves don't tend not to give evidence, um, because almost certainly there's a certainty that revenge will be wreaked upon them, um, far greater certainty than, than, than the, them actually getting caught and, 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 and going to prison. And so, yes, there is that element that this is a kind of industry where the resort to violence is, is not difficult. It's, it's, it's very close at hand. Do you think there's a network of contract killers? Well, that is certainly what the KwaZulu-Natal Police Commissioner was uh, suggesting in the various inputs that he's given on this matter, that there are well-known people who take on different roles in, in different parts of a killing, spotters and various other mm. terms that he used. What was intriguing for me is that it was relatively easy for the police to find other charges on which to charge four of the suspects. In other words, they'd obviously committed other crimes over the time period, and perhaps they would not have been apprehended for those crimes if they hadn't been investigated for these killings. So it suggests to me quite a high degree of impunity for serious violence, which greater alacrity, greater speed of investigation, greater interest in investigation would have addressed those cases at an earlier time. It's only now that those people have been linked to this AK Kiernan incident that, 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 that they've actually been apprehended. And just a quick one in conclusion, this also raises questions, does it not, about the easy availability of weapons in this country? Yeah, certainly that is a very great concern and we know that the the, the SAPS uh, arsenal weapons that should have been destroyed were a few years ago um, that was a great source for about three and a half thousand such weapons but we also know that weapons seem to be coming in from neighboring countries as well 
And these are not the kinds of weapons for which you can get licenses. They're often automatic weapons. And yeah, it's it's a deep concern that firearms are so readily available for nefarious purposes. Dr. Jean Redpath, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. And let's finish the program with this story. The National Assembly adopting the controversial copyright amendment bill. This is in spite of strong opposition from many in the creative industry. Joining us now is Jack Devneren from the South African Guild of Actors. He is the chairperson. Jack, how do you believe the bill then, as it stands, is going to impact the livelihood of actors? What's your concern? Well, we are absolutely delighted. And I'm afraid there's been a narrative being pushed through the media that um, the the bill should only be understood for being controversial, problematic, or you know otherwise unworkable. And I think we've got to be very careful how we frame this discussion. Um, we need to understand that there are enormous industry groups, lobby groups as well, that are very much in favor, as I am, of the bills. The South African Guild of Actors is delighted that the bills have passed the National Assembly for the second time. And in fact, we are looking forward to the practical application of uh, what's contained in the bills, which gives South African actors a right, a statutory right for the very first time to earn residuals and royalties. So that's good news. Why has there been so much opposition then, do you think? <laughs> there are a number of provisions in the bill that cause concern. For, for example, you would see in the media, being involved as you are, that there are... Uh, it, huge problems with the ways in which music royalties, for example, are dispersed and or not dispersed, as the case may be. So what what we have in the bills is for for regulations to be introduced in order for music collecting societies to have to subscribe to these rules in order to be more transparent in their accounting processes. And obviously, the number of people working within these structures are alarmed that they they should be regulated at all. And certainly the bills are saying, you need to collect your your royalties as is your mandate, but you also need to be regulated. And and a lot of people are not happy with that. And there are a number of other provisions like that, that introduce provisions that people are not comfortable with, including um, organizations, publishers, uh, studios outside of South Africa that are concerned as well. There are other issues like a 25-year limitation on the assignment of rights, also the fair use principle. Again, is this going to cause difficulty, do you think, broadly for the creative industry going forward? I think people will express their concern by you know, lobbying the president again to say you shouldn't sign these bills into law because let's not forget that this is still in, in a process of being established, of being promulgated. These are amendments to existing pieces of legislation. So, um, you know, we we also are very aware that there are organizations that are saying we want to take this to the constitutional court because in their view, the bills don't pass constitutional muster and all these things will play themselves out. And and of course, you know, we we welcome these uh, these opportunities in order for the bills to be explored, to be refined and for the interpretations of various provisions to be clarified. So, yes, um, you know, we are still in the process and yes, there there is still enormous opposition, but this is not something to be concerned with. What we should be focusing on is the fact that you've got two pieces of legislation, the Copyright Act of 1978, the Performance Protection Act of 1967, and these two bills 
that seek to review and 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 revise these these original pieces of legislation are now going to be um, affected. We are we're going to modernize these pieces of legislation, and this is something we should welcome. How principally does this benefit actors? The two bills, the Performance Protection Act and the Copyright Act, are linked for an important purpose. Firstly, you'll find it's the Performance Protection Act that that awards actors the royalty right for the very first time in South African history. And it's the Copyright Act that then allows these actors to establish and mandate a collecting society in which to collect these royalties for them. So in, in essence... You know, we are now in 2024, and for us to be able to say the very first time we can collect royalties, this is a huge moment for us. This is an historic moment for us because we've built our industry, you know, on the backs of enormous mm. talent. Like, you know, if you think about the the late Henry Kele and Joe Mafela and, um, you know, Shalene Serti Richards, those are iconic performers. And to think that when they passed, they will not be able to earn, um, even though the work that they've performed in continues to be exploited and continues to earn money for the producers and for broadcasters. There has to be, a, that's, that cannot be right in principle. So this is our attempt to correct it. And it can only be done through legislation because we have no other form of regulation in the industry. Well, in spite of the opposition, let's not rain on your parade. And thank you very much for joining me, Jack Devnarain from the South African Guild of Actors. Just before I leave you on our Thursday online poll, uh, we spoke about concern over South African Airways' viability. My question was, uh, was the airline worth saving? Should it be closed or show me another check-in? Three quarters of our respondents saying it was time to shut down the carrier. Today, we reported earlier on Roger Jardine's Change Starts Now party dropping out of the election. What's your view on that? Sad news, expected, or it never had a chance? If you have a view on that, uh, go to MoneyWeb on Twitter X, also on our LinkedIn page. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. We are then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a good weekend and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.